The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hey everybody, this is Rich Eisen, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Hi, Rich. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm okay. Great. Well, um, anyone who's been paying attention to the news, of course, knows that this week was a pretty bad week in California for gun violence. We've seen multiple shootings, uh, lots of victims, very sad, and a lot of talk also about uh, how when the governor went to visit one of the victims in the hospital, this person noted to him how much he needed to get out of the hospital because he could not afford to be in the hospital paying these bills. He needed to get back to work, and it brought to mind that California does help crime victims uh, who are in this kind of a situation. So we're feeling really, really lucky today to bring an old friend of ours in here who's going to help explain how that process works. Uh, we are joined today by Linda Gladhill. She is the chief officer at the California Victim Compensation Board, which means she's in charge. She gets to run this stuff. Uh, of course, we, we've known Linda for a lot of years as a reporter and as a comms person around the Capitol. Uh, Linda, welcome. Glad Thank to have you. you here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, let's just get right to the chase here. You know, um, I think one of the problems we have is, is that a lot of people don't really even know that your organization exists and what it does. So can you give us the quick nickel tour of what your mission is? Absolutely. Our core mission is to help victims of violent crime restore their lives. And so we do that by providing compensation in amounts up to $70,000 for crime victims, their families, and anyone who was in this case, especially this week, witness or felt in fear of their life. So those who are at, for instance, the ballroom um, who maybe didn't experience an injury but may be suffering some mental health consequences from being there, um, we are... Um, we were established in 1965. We're the oldest victim compensation program in the country. And we are also a pair of last resort. So we come after other insurance. But for instance, in the case of the gentleman that the governor talked to, it turned out he did have Medicaid. He could get some help for his medical bills. But we also cover income loss. We cover additional expenses. We might help him with his copay if he couldn't pay for that. So we um, encourage anyone who's been a victim of crime or a family member or a witness to apply for our program. Even if they're not eligible for compensation immediately, they may be in the future. And once their application approved, it's lifelong. Wow. Wow. And so I want to be clear here. They don't have to have suffered the physical injury themselves. It could be, as you know, a witness or if there's a PTSD situation down the road. Number one. And then number two, also, you noted the state is the payer of last resort. So you're not just going to hand them a check, but you are going to step in if all of the rest of their uh, insurance or what have you isn't going to restore them to their to where they were before this thing happened. Correct. Correct. So, for example, the 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 way the statute reads is a physical injury or threat of physical injury. And so, um, as you can imagine, that means either you were injured yourself, you were killed, or you were there and thought you might 
have be injured or killed. And so that's, that's how we define it. Also, for those who are, are deceased, family members are eligible. Um, so they may be eligible for help with funeral burial costs or their own mental health um, expenses um, due to the trauma of the nature of the incident. And where does most of the funding come from? Because I understand there's a big chunk of it, it's from the feds, but there's also state money as well, correct? Correct. Um, money comes, um, we're paid through the restitution fund, which um, comes from state restitution fines, fees, and penalties. Um, we also get money, as you said, from federal government grant from the Office of um, Victims of Crime and the Victims of Crime Act, the federal legislation. Um, but because the restitution fund has decreased uh, in the past decade or so, um, we also receive a small portion of general fund money on a regular, on an annual basis in order to make sure we're able to compensate all of the victims who need our services. And you got a little bit of a bump on that last year, correct? So our um, general fund money stayed the same, but we were able to increase some of the benefits. So as I mentioned, we have a $70,000 overall cap. That's the maps that we're able to pay any particular victim. Um, within that, there are different caps. Um, so for instance, funeral and burial costs used to be um, at $7,500, um, and that raised over 12000 We also got small bumps in relocation fees and crime scene cleanup fees. So we're able to pay victims a little bit more in those specific categories. And how many people in California take advantage of this every year on an average year? So in the fiscal year um, 2021, we received about 40,000 applications and paid out just over $40 million. Wow. Yeah. Uh, huh. How does the crime rate affect this? Because, you know, that's the, that's a big subject of discussion in, in state houses these days, including ours. Uh, has the, uh, rise in crime and violent crime had a Im- big impact on you? Or how, how does that play into this? So it's interesting. There aren't really a measure of the number of victims in the state. The crime rate is one description of it that we can use as a measurement tool. Our application rates have actually gone down a little bit over the past couple of years. We think it might be pandemic related. People weren't able to access the resources um, that they needed, um, especially if you think about domestic violence victims, sexual assault victims. Maybe they weren't getting the help that they needed um, during the pandemic. We're trying to counteract that. One of the things we did get in this last year's budget was uh, three million million dollars one time for a media campaign. So we're going to be launching that this year to make sure that we can try to reach more people. Um, I will say that the I think the reason that people don't know about it is it's one of those things you don't know you need it until you need it. Um, and once you're a victim of a crime, hopefully you have resources around you who will help tell you about our program. Um, we're, we have a lot of partnerships with um, district attorney's offices around the state, uh, with advocacy groups, um, with people who interact with victims on a regular basis. And our goal is to increase that always so that they tell people about our program, potentially help them apply for our program, um, really to get the word out that way. And when someone applies, what's the application criteria? Because is this, uh, I assume that the fund is intended to help people with limited resources. Um, Is there a income cutoff or is there, you know, how do you assess whether somebody that applies for assistance is going to get it? So there's no income cutoff. We collect the information. The biggest factor is that we have to um, determine that a crime took place. 
that is most often with a police report, but not entirely. Um, for instance, for domestic violence, sexual assault, um, we can take other means of verifying that a crime happened. So it could be um, information from a doctor or, or a, a psychologist, a mental health provider, or potentially in the case of human trafficking, we can take information from a caseworker. So for some very specific crimes, there's other criteria. By and large, we use crime reports to tell us if a crime took place. You also um, can't be involved in the crime. Um, so if you, you know, so that's a criteria that, and you can't be incarcerated or on parole. So there are a few limits to who's eligible. Um, for the most part, anyone's eligible to apply and application process, you're, you get an approved application if we can verify that you were the victim of a particular crime. Um, after that, then the next step is that we would compensate you or reimburse you for bills or pay bills directly, depending on the circumstance. Um, so for instance, Funeral burial costs, we very often work directly with the funeral home to pay the now about $12,000 that we can directly. Um, and then the family may be responsible if there's costs up above and beyond that. Um, occasionally, we for mental health, we will also then work with providers. Um, sometimes we do reimburse bills. Somebody gets a bill from an ER visit, an ambulance um, you know, ride that they can't, their insurance doesn't cover. If, if they're a qualified recipient and they send that to us and we real, understand that there's no insurance that covers that, then we will compensate them. And how long is the process take? I mean, you know, you hear this all the time. People, oh, you know, like when we saw during the pandemic and a lot of the small businesses, they, you know, the, the, uh, trying to apply for the PPP loans and that kind of a thing. You know, you heard all the time, oh my God, the process was so onerous and it took so long and it didn't work out because it took so long for me while, you know, the bigger companies were getting it seemingly a lot faster, all that kind of thing. What's the turnaround time for Joe Citizen who might have to apply for these kinds of reimbursements through your organization? Sure. So applications are usually um, acted on within 45 days. We have up to 90 days, but we've cut that down almost in half. Um, and then bills, um, it depends on how, how we get the bills and how long it takes. And I will tell you that the, the most significant complicating factor is getting the police report. Um, because um, of those, you know, uh, our peace officers are very busy as well. So getting that information from um, the police reports, that can be the most challenging part of the of approving an application. And so this only applies to violent crimes. So if someone stole your car and you're going to lose your job, she you can no longer drive to work, you're just out of luck. That's correct if you were not in the car at the time that it was stolen, right? Oh. Um, because, <laughs> because then it would be a violent crime. Bad news, right? The right. good news is I was not in the car. The bad news is, well, now I can't get reimbursed this way. Uh, but that is correct. We are set up to only do financial, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, violent crime. So we don't cover financial crime. We don't cover um, property crime, things like that. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Now, you, there are some funding. I want to just go back to the funding for just a moment because you said there was some of the funding comes from the feds, some comes from the states, but the, the state funding, there's some fluctuation based on how, where the state gets its money, correct? You, and you know, the, uh, fines and fees and that kind of a thing. Can you, can you reiterate to me what that, how that works? So, of course, um, potentially when someone goes through the criminal justice system, they might be ordered, uh, there might be court ordered restitution that they would pay either directly to a victim or as a pass-through occasionally. Um, so sometimes an offender is sent, is goes to um, CDCR, Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and then if they're ordered to pay restitution, um, CDCR will collect that. 
and we serve as a victim pass-through. Um, so we will take that money and then disperse it to the victim. Um, it allows the victim to not have to have that. Um, we will also do things like collect if the if the offender is only um, paying you know a few dollars every month and the victim doesn't want to get a check of two dollars every month. We'll collect it and hold it for a year if they want us to, and then send them one check. Um, so we do that kind of work. The the money that is ordered that's restitution that doesn't go to a specific victim goes into the restitution fund, and that's the primary source of our funding. Do you have any idea what? percentage of eligible victims might be out there that actually take use of the program? Is it, is it, is it a, I mean, because I think one of the premises here is that a lot of people don't really even know that the program exists, even though it's been around since 1965. Um, so do you have an idea of how many people use it that, that compared to how many could be using it? Unfortunately, no. That's something that I've been working on um, to try to find a way to, to identify that. We've had some conversations with the UC Berkeley Possibilities Lab, who do a lot of data crunching, to understand better where that universe is. Not just how many, but where they li- sit, I think I'm really interested in. So, for instance, are there particular counties that we maybe aren't reaching that we should? That's something that we're going to really be exploring as we um, look to spend the $3 million that the legislature gave us on media outreach. Um, what we know about victims is that, and, and this is so true, you know, just this week with these terrible tragedies, in the moment, they're not thinking about applying for a program like ours. In the moment, they just, they are devastated, obviously, um, distraught, don't know where to turn. Um, in the moment, they just need sort of immediate assistance. Um, for the most part, where we, where victims tend to apply for, for our program is maybe a month down the road, maybe two months down the road. Maybe they don't even know what bills they're getting um, from the hospital until they show up in, you know, in their mailbox a few months later. So what we're trying to do is make sure people know about us, not just in the immediate, um, because law enforcement's required to, you know, tell people about us, things like that. But we, we, in the immediate, sometimes it doesn't register. So what we're trying to do is make sure that along the way, as victims begin to process the trauma that they've experienced, that they understand that this resource is available to them. And people have up to seven years to apply to our program. So it doesn't, you don't have to worry about getting your application in, in the first three months. Um, you can, you, it can be later on in the process. Obviously the longer it goes on, potentially it's harder to get the verification documents, but we don't want to discourage people from applying. We encourage people to apply. Um, I would also say encourage you to apply even if you have insurance right now, because perhaps in a year from now, you don't have that insurance anymore. And then you can come to us and say, I don't have insurance anymore, but I still need this mental health treatment based or this medical treatment based on what happened to me, this violent crime. And then we're able to step in and help you. And you noted that uh, law enforcement is required to inform people about you. How about uh, medical personnel? Are, are, do they have a role in this and as far as informing people about what their options are with you? There's, there's no requirement, but we certainly do outreach with um, medical personnel, with, as I mentioned, advocacy groups, district attorney's offices, all of those folks to make sure that they're um, talking to victims of crime and letting them know about the resources that are available to them. And you do actually have um, services or offerings beyond just crime victims, right? We were talking about one earlier before we came on the air. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the outreach program that you're that you're also trying to to get into action here? Yeah. So um, uh, in. 
20, I'm going to get the budget year wrong, but the legislature in the, in the budget, um, gave us the responsibility of handing out compensation in the forced or involuntary sterilization program. And so what happened was there were victims of eugenics laws who were in state hospitals and other state-run facilities, or they were in a correctional facility after 1979 when the eugenics laws were taken off the books, who may have been involuntarily sterilized or sterilized against their will. And their legislature gave money to those victims. And so we're um, doing that outreach and trying to reach those victims. Uh, we have the application process. We're dispensing the funds. Um, that is a two-year program. So we're halfway through it. It ends December 31st, 2023. And so this is a very hard-to-reach population. The estimates are that there are only maybe at most 600 of those people still alive. Um, and as you imagine, they're quite elderly, those who were in state hospitals a long time ago, um, or they were, or they're incarcerated or were incarcerated. And so maybe their relationship with state government is, is not that great. Um, so it's really a hard to reach population that's so small. Imagine a state of how many million we are and trying to reach those few hundred who, um, are eligible. So we, um, the legislature gave us the money for the program, but also some money for outreach. So we've started some social media campaigns. There'll be some radio ads going up in LA and the Bay Area, um, to try to reach as many people as we possibly can. We've done a lot of outreach to obviously correctional facilities, but skilled nursing facilities, um, people, places where elderly might be. We also recognize that it might be family members. It might be nieces, nephews, cousins who are aware that this happened to their relative. Um, and who could help them potentially apply for our program. So we're, we're really just doing everything we can to get the word out because it's such a small population, but um, such one that deserves this compensation. Yeah, you know, I'm reading a book right now, not on the topic of eugenics, but it's it's part of uh, the story, part of this, this um, topic that I'm reading on, and I had no idea how widespread it was and how much popular support it had and some areas. So, um, I imagine that that particular, the people who were victims of that might be real hesitant to deal with government if, unless they're very, very, very sure that, uh, they're going to be okay. No, it's, it's very hard. It's hard to read some of those documents. A lot of, again, a lot of the documentation is either extremely old or it doesn't exist anymore, which also makes it very challenging. But, um, you know, I review each of these cases personally that we approve or deny because it's so important to me. And, um, some of the, you know, especially from the state hospitals where they were young children who were taken there and, because of their parents' alcoholism or perceived mental imbalance at the time, they were decided that they were a risk, um, and so that they were, you know, sterilized as a young child, you know, child against their will. It's just, it's horrific. Right. Now, were there records from the actual institutions that you can kind of work backwards and try to track people down? So from the Department of Corrections there are, and so they have a list of, they have, um, you know, this is, this is government for you. They have the billing code for what, for, for sterilization procedure. And so they have the list of that. There were about 650, maybe not even that many people on that list. Um, not even that many, I think. And so we've, e we've mailed, if we have you know, addresses for the people, we've mailed them all letters saying you may be eligible. Some of those were not involuntary, right? To keep in mind, some of them were consensual. Um, there's, you know, in the legislation, it's very clear consent has to have been given. 30 days 
uh, away from the procedure and it has to be signed written consent. So some of those do have consent. But um, for the state hospitals and those um, facilities, it's a lot harder because those are a lot older. Um, we do have some records from the state archives, but it doesn't, um, there's no list anywhere. So it's, um, we use those more for verification than for actively, proactively trying to reach people um, because those records are still in exist. Well, Linda, I want to really say thank you very much for coming in today and talking with us about this. I think it's a really important topic and um, glad we could be of a little bit of help in, in bringing it to the public's attention. So one thing uh, before we go, where, like, how do people find this? What's the website? What's the phone number? Yes. Absolutely. So um, the website is um, victims.ca.gov. And we have um, on the website special areas for victims of mass violence. So victims of either of the two incidents this week, there are special sessions that we have set up with all the pertinent information and applications in different languages, things like that. Um, but also um, we have our call center, so people are welcome to call our 800 number um, on, during regular business hours, and we're able to um, help them that way. And what's the 800 well. number? Uh, 1-800-777-9229. Great. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Linda. We really appreciate it. You know, I think you're doing great work here. And busy, a busy week, I would think. Yeah, it sadly. Was a, it was sadly a busy week. Um, I will say we have tremendous county partners who really stepped up in these in, in these incidents. It's always the local resources that are the best in times like these. They know the community. They know the people. They know the languages spoken. Um, so they've been fantastic. Um, and so we're just here to support them, really, in times like these. Um, we've been involved in much larger incidences before I was at Cal VCB. So, for instance, the borderline shooting in um, Las Vegas and, of course, 9-11 was the biggest one. There were so many Californians um, who were impacted by that tragedy that uh, Cal VCB had a large role. So over the years, unfortunately, we've had to deal with these incidents in the past. And um, we know how to do it, but um, we our hearts go out to and thoughts go out to everyone who was involved. Absolutely. Well, Linda Gladhill, uh, Executive Officer of the California Victim Compensation Board. Thank you. Okay. Well, thanks again to Linda Gladhill for coming in and sharing all the information today about the uh, Victims Compensation Fund. But that can only mean that it's time for us to turn our attention to who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Well, Tim, it's been another one of those weeks where uh, I, I I think I'm going to start out with what, what I would call maybe the runner up because uh, Kevin DeLeon is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, as bad as his uh, situation has been, and it just seems to keep getting worse for him. Uh, you know, he recently returned uh, to the L.A. Uh, City Council and he'd been away for two months, right? Hoping that all of this stuff would would uh, settle down. It hasn't really, the LA Times ran a poll uh, that showed not only has it not settled down, more than half of his constituents, at least the ones who answered the poll, favor him being recalled should it come to that. Uh, not quite less than half uh, have indicated they have no faith in him. Uh, they disapprove of his of his performance on the council. Only twenty three percent said they supported him. That does not indicate to me that anything's dying down for him. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, Kevin DeLeon will have a uh, press conference right now calling this all fake news. 
Um, but, you know, Kevin continues to hang on. He's still in there and uh, I'm sure he will, will brush this off. He's, he's attempting to be the Teflon city councilman. Uh, you know, I don't know that it'll work, but so far he's holding tough. So, you know, uh, on the other side of things, I saw that uh, John Eastman, uh, Trump uh, attorney, had it's been announced that he's probably going to be censured and may uh, lose his ability to practice law in the state of California. Not great for him. I don't think anybody wants to be disbarred. We'll see if that actually happens again. This has not already happened. But I think our our winner today is someone who actually has had the denouement uh, this week that knows that it's over. Yes, absolutely. I, I think there was a lot of momentum. A lot of folks maybe believed that uh, uh, Harmie Dillon maybe stood a really good chance of upending Ronna McDaniel as the uh, head of the Republican National Committee or the chair for the Republican National Committee. Um, and that's not going to happen, is it, Tim? Yeah, from what I understand, uh, she got, I believe, I think she got about 56 votes, I think was what I saw. And uh, Ron McDaniel got well over 100. Uh, she did the good news is she did much better than Mike Lindell, the My, My Pillow guy, who I think got 14 or 15 votes. Uh, so, you know, there is, if you're going to take a victory somewhere, she did do better than Mike Lindell. So, uh, but well, I've got the numbers. The, the, the oh, numbers were. It was 111 to 51 and uh, in favor, of course, of, of Ms. McDaniel, who is uh, Mitt Romney's niece. We, I feel like we need to, 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 you know, come back on that one just a bit. Um, and then uh, um, pillow salesman and, uh, and Trump supporter Mike Lindell got uh, four votes, actually, which um, I have to say, you know, uh, even getting four votes seems seems kind of uh, kind and of mind-boggling. I thought I saw that he was in the teens. Are you sure it was not 14? No, I'm looking right here at the numbers. It was it was 111 to 51 to four. And then Lee Zeldin, who was actually not an official official candidate, he got one. So so apparently uh, maybe somebody uh, wrote him in. Maybe he wrote in himself. I don't know. But that's the uh, it was 111 to 51 to four to one. Those were the numbers. Well, and Army Dillon is a, certainly a significant force in California Republican politics. Uh, she's been on our top 100 list before. Uh, she loves suing the Newsom administration and sometimes wins. Uh, and I know that she had uh, been working with Mr. Trump as a client, as an attorney. And I think a lot of people believe she had a very good shot at this. Uh, so I was a little surprised to see that she did not do better. But, uh, you know, maybe this is just her first time uh, trying to grab the bass ring and maybe she'll she'll get it next time around. Yeah, yeah, actually, I, I thought it was going to be closer, too. I really did. I mean, because um, there's certainly been a lot of vocal uh, disapproval of uh, Ronna McDaniel, uh, particularly after the, the last election when, you know, Republicans really and probably for very legitimate reasons felt that they had uh, you know reason to think they were going to do much better than they did. And so, you know, when, if you're the one. If you're the one in charge, when that happens, you know you're going to get a lot of the blame, and she was definitely getting a lot of the blame. So I thought this might be a much closer election than it was, but she she actually won this uh, going away, and so um, this goes to show what do we know, right? It's true. I have to admit, I don't have deep tendrils into the uh, Republican National Committee. That's my confession. <laughs> uh, me too. There you go. But 
even so, you know, you might you might have a point though. You know, the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, balloting just happened too, and we saw Scott Rowland was the only person elected uh, for all my sports uh, compadres out there. Um, and you know, his first year on the ballot, he only got ten percent of the vote, barely enough to stay on the ballot. Because if if you drop below ten percent any time, you're off the ballot. So uh, over the course of the next several votes, over the next what four or five years. Uh, that 10% turned into the 75% he needed to become a Hall of Famer. I don't know what was different between the first vote and this one, other than just every year, more and more voters decided he was the right guy. So maybe that's something, uh, you know, that that uh, Ms. Dillon can look forward to as well, saying maybe future votes, people will look at me a little differently than they're looking at me this time. Well, and, you know, to tie it all back into Republican politics, I know in the 1860 uh, presidential, uh, I think it was William Henry Seward actually took it on the first ballot. I mean, he didn't ultimately get enough votes, but he was by far the leader. And then Mr. Lincoln came in later and and swept in from behind and took it. So so maybe Harmeet Dillon is, is pursuing an Abraham Lincoln strategy where she'll, she'll come from behind later and pick this up uh, and Ronald McDaniel will be her secretary of state. You never know. You that's the one thing that uh, I think if you do this long enough, you uh, you come to realize is that you just never know. Twenty four hours is a lifetime in politics, so who knows what'll happen two years from now, right? Well, and don't say that because then we'll have to re-record this. Uh, you know, we're doing this on Friday and we'll post it on Monday. So twenty four. Hopefully, no one has a twenty four hours that's worse worse than this. So right. uh, Harmy Dillon, congratulations on the worst week in California. I'm sure you wished you didn't get it, but at least you you saved us from trying to hang it on Kevin DeLeon once again. Yes. I, I think he might be the most relieved person in California. We'll just leave it at that. All right, Rich. Well, thanks so much. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. Yep. You too. Take care, Tim. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.